What is happening to the surface of the planet Earth and to California's Central Valley? The concerns we have here in Modesto are varied. We need to look at the effects that the global temperatures are having on our soil and various aspects of life in an agricultural community. What are the honest, hardcore facts about reckless human behavior that cause the peril that humans make for each other? And what can we do to take better care of each other? Great Mother Earth, her promise in peril. We are curators of factual recordings so that you can learn and navigate for yourself this terrain of the perils and the promises right here on kcbpradio.org sponsored by the Peace Life Center of Modesto. Today on The Peril and the Promise, we'll hear a little bit about river health, the health of the rivers here in California. We'll also hear from the legal team supporting the water protectors out in uh, the Dakotas. And we'll hear about the case for climate reparations from the Sierra Club. But first, uh, a reminder, if you're getting a new mobile phone, make sure you get your old one. Any old mobile phone should get recycled because only 10% of mobile phones currently get recycled. But if a ton of mobile phones were recycled, that uh, one of the many products you get from that is gold because there's a lot of gold in mobile phones. So one ton of mobile phones would bring 300 times more gold than digging up a ton of gold ore because when you dig up gold ore it's not pure gold you have to find the gold in it so you, you get a lot more gold if you just recycle all the mobile phones so recycle your phone okay as the sierra club has published in the summer of 2018 they reminded us that three centuries ago the los angeles river was a rich riparian ecosystem a uh, wonderful channel of water meandering along the base of the Santa Monica Mountains and through miles of wetlands and marshes with cottonwoods and oaks and grizzly bears and steelhead fish along the shores. But that watershed is now unrecognizable for any of you listening in the early 21st century because all the um, cinder block walls, the uh, warehouses and chain link fence, all that concrete of the, the great Southland of Los Angeles um, has changed the river. So efforts to restore and beautify the river date, date back to 1930 when uh, Mr. Olmsted proposed a system of contiguous parks and greenways. So that's about 90 years ago. 1930, when that proposal came, the plan went nowhere. And now the Los Angeles River Basin uh, has been even more overdeveloped since then. And it's currently at the center of a heated public works debate. But this time, real money has been dedicated to revitalizing the once thriving riparian landmark. So the city of Los Angeles and LA Riverworks policy team currently have a project either underway or in design for every mile of the river within the city limits. So, of course, even beyond Los Angeles, the, the whole watershed idea of how to understand our ecosystem is seriously important. There's actually a wonderful book. It's called The California Field Atlas by O.B. Kaufman. It's a nice little uh, size of a large 
sandwich or maybe two sandwiches. It's a wonderful book. It does, it's got beautiful um, watercolor paintings or drawings throughout the whole thing. And it rarely mentions any city. So it's sort of um, an expose of what uh, the beauty of uh, California from an atlas point of view, um, the whole state before industrialization and useful after industrialization if we live that long or if the book survives into that era because it does focus a lot on the riverways and, and the animal life. It's a, Again, it's a great book. Uh, you can get it at your local library and it's called The California Field Atlas by O.B. Kaufman. So back to the story from the uh, Sierra Club regarding uh, trying to help out with the L.A., River Basin. Uh, Los Angeles has um, water that comes from hundreds of miles away. When you turn on the tap, you get water from very far away. Uh, it's the third largest urban economy in the world, and 80 to 90 percent of the water is imported. One of the um, uh, one of my friends, Jonathan Parfrey, said, "Quote." The joke about Los Angeles is that if a drop of water falls anywhere in the western United States, L.A. has a pipe to bring it to the city. But if a drop of water falls onto the city itself, you shunt it out to the ocean. Again, that's a quote from uh, Jonathan Parfrey, the founder and executive director of Climate Resolve. Uh, I know him from being a member of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Few residents in uh, the L.A. basin realize that what comes out of the faucet is like was likely once part of the Sierra Nevada snowpack. So it passed right by us in uh, Modesto in the Central Valley. Coming out of the Sierra Nevada snowpack, um, that water became L.A. drinking water, which also uh, is used for many other purposes. When it goes into the pipes, um, then it comes out and can be used to wash cars or to uh, flush toilets or, or drink. Anyway... Um, a lot of that water came from Mount Shasta or the Colorado River, and that, that's that's a paradox, uh, given that many Los Angeles people live in a once-thriving floodplain. So wouldn't it be wonderful if uh, some of that could be reclaimed, some of the uh, concrete could be broken up and the L.A. River could be brought back to uh, what it was before industrialization. The Sierra Club publication continues that not long after California became a state in 1851, the water needs of the booming populations stressed out the Los Angeles River to the breaking point. And meanwhile, the fitful river endangered the settlements multiplying throughout the floodplain. Uh, so after catastrophic floods in 1914, 1934, and 1938, the city, at the recommendation of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, agreed to straighten the riverbed and pave it with concrete so that that hurt the plant and wildlife along the way, of course. And a complex of aqueducts and dams and reservoirs was built to import most of the city's water, and today it delivers about 430 million gallons a day. We'll be back in a minute to hear a little bit more about the hope, the promise for Los Angeles in the water. Welcome back to The Peril and the Promise. Uh, we were talking about the water in Los Angeles and the L.A. River and the uh, hope that uh, it can be regenerated. Mayor Eric Garcetti, according to the um, 
Sierra Club said, quote, the river is the city. It's our birthplace. It sustained native peoples here. It allowed the Pueblo of Los Angeles to be built. It was something we sought to use, to control, and we turned our backs on it. Now we seek to coexist with it and to live side by side with it and to turn our faces to it once again, unquote. This is a, a hopeful sign that a politician uh, could say such a thing uh, about the water. And another one of the local activists, uh, Irma Munoz, who organizes events, this one that was at a retirement home uh, this past March, was called Find Your Voice, Speak Up, and Speak Out. And what Munoz said is, quote, People should be raising their voices and be engaged. We owe it to the L.A. River. We owe it to her. She's been waiting all these years for someone to heal her. I think in the process of healing the L.A. River, we'll be healing ourselves. Unquote. So, that's some of the promise for what can happen for the folks that are uh, that need water, that live in the Los Angeles Basin. To underscore a little bit more of the peril, um, according to the Sierra Club, the city of Los Angeles also faces an uncertain future as its reliance on imported water collides with the realities of climate change. According to the 2016, two years ago, Los Angeles Basin Study, by the middle of the 21st century, a temperature increase, which is likely, of um, up to 5 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere between 1.8 and 5.4, that'll reduce the snowfall at lower elevations and decrease snowpack. So the Sierra Nevada snowpack which has already been shrinking and having difficulty over the past decade, that snowpack shrinking by as much as 40% from its historical average by mid-century, that would mean that the water shortage for folks in the Southland uh, would be worse than the 1977 drought by 2035. So part of the hope for the river and for the people um, south of us here in the Central Valley is that uh, again, I quote from the Sierra Club, it may not be possible to stop the market dynamics transforming the city of Los Angeles, but when the folks down there turn out to make their views heard, to demand justice in housing and justice in river restoration, when you ask for both, then those folks can at least help shape the dynamics into a process that better serves everyone, including the river. turn to uh, some updates on the water protectors after the Dakota Access Pipeline actions from a few years ago. Uh, Red Fawn and Little Feather are two of the defendants. Uh, Red Fawn was recently sentenced. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be um, an appeal in that case. And Little Feather's spouse is Leola Cowboy. She's one of the legal aides. And Terry Janis is the executive director of the Water Protector Legal Collective. So here's um, some sound bites from Terry Janis and Leola Cowboy, um, who are part of the legal team, uh, the Water Protector Legal Collective team. It starts with uh, Terry Janis explaining that the 57 months that Red Fawn was sentenced to, um, that part of those 57 months have already been covered by the time the Red Fawn's already been imprisoned. 
and and they'll they'll break it out based upon the time that she served in the jails and the prisons, and then the more much more limited amount of time that she served in the halfway house. Uh, so she was initially a prison, I think, in October 2016. So about 18 months of that time uh, will be credited as time served. Leola Cowboy speaks about her spouse. So Little Feather was federally charged. And like we said, there are a couple of other charges, right? There's seven, six have moved forward. Um, so this charge of civil disorder and originally had that and use of fire to commit a federal offense. And he took a non-cooperative plea and that was to civil disorder. His sentencing was on May 30th of this year. Um, so the reason why he's going to federal prison is because of this, it's a federal charge of civil disorder. Um, civil disorder is a federal charge. Um, like the other federal defendants, every single one of them has that civil disorder charge. Um, so currently he is in Hazleton USP, that's a maximum security um, penitentiary and he was in Burley County for a week. It took five weeks, four jails for him to get into the BOP system. So he entered BOP on July 2nd and that was in the transferring center being processed and on July 9th that's when he entered into Hazleton. And like I said that's maximum security prison. We were as a um, as his legal defense team and the judge, when we were in sentencing on May 30th, we were talking about his guidelines and preparing for him to go into medium security. And up until July 2nd, that's when we were aware of the news that he's actually going into a maximum security prison. Adding insult to injury, a further crime was committed by the alleged authorities, the people that run the federal system of prisons, when they somehow decided to take Little Feather from a medium security punishment to a maximum security facility for his punishment. But it's not like we can be like, oh, hey, you made a mistake. Can you change, it? Can you change things now? I don't know how the federal system works. I doubt it's going to be an easy fix. It's going to take a lot of work for us to get this figured out. Terry Janice went on to describe the difference in the delineation between federal charges and state charges for these Standing Rock uh, water protectors and what is happening to their court cases. There are uh, seven uh, individuals, all indigenous, who are charged with federal uh, charges and um, 835 state charges. Um, the state charges, of course, under under state jurisdiction and a range of different uh, charges. What's distinct about the federal charges, and Lola uh, started talking about that, is the underlying charges based upon a charge of, uh, of civil disorder, which at its core, in order for it to be a federal charge, has to tie to an interference with interstate commerce. And, uh, and so that, and then federal legislation establishes the civil disorder charge um, based upon this kind of interesting history of, of incidents where there might be uh, a protest or a civil disorder in which a fire is set 
firemen go to put out that fire. And in some situations, they might have been obstructed or hampered from doing their job of putting out the fire. So the, the civil disorder charge in particular was designed uh, to apply directly to that, often in labor movements or civil rights movements or other things like that. Um, but the recent application, application has primarily focused on indigenous peoples, uh, activists, uh, protest movements, and African-American activist protest movements. And it's a unique sort of utilization so that, you know, even though the underlying sort of issue of a fire or fighting a fire or something like that is not relevant, um, there's that is one of the key federal criminal uh, charges that are brought against indigenous peoples. And in this particular situation, it's also interesting and unique that all of the people that were brought on federal charges were indigenous. That was Terry Janice and Leola Cowboy, who both work with the Water Protector Legal Collective folks. You're listening to The Peril and the Promise, and our show does, of course, originate here in the Central Valley of California. And some people might be wondering, why are we looking at this uh, issue of the Standing Rock, uh, no Dakota Access Pipeline, water protectors, civil resistance issue from across the country? And Terry Janice of this uh, Water Protector Legal Collective is about to explain why this is of importance to Californians. And it's about the fact that the Standing Rock movement, the demonstrations, were so amazingly effective and powerful, it completely shocked the the legal system, uh, the powers that be that are able to continue to support big business rather than human rights or the rights of the environment or whatever you want to say regarding um, the ability for a safe, clean environment and how that affects people's health. So here's Terry Janice regarding the issues of different states passing legislation to further block protest movements. That process of, uh, is a reaction to Standing Rock. Mm -hmm. And in some states, it is a directly stated reaction. We don't want the Standing Rock in Wyoming. We don't want a Standing Rock someplace else. And in Wyoming, for example, uh, that bill did not pass. Uh, but in other places, it has. And what they've done in responding to that and reacting to that is a, an overly harsh and negative response uh, to the simple American constitutional right of protest and dissent. Uh, the numbers of bills that are occurring both at the federal and state level uh, should be a great concern to American citizens. It also clarifies uh, the connection between uh, corporate America and, and the governments of this mm -hmm. country. Um, the history of, of this um, critical infrastructure bill uh, comes out of a nonprofit organization that is significantly funded by the extraction industry. From our perspective, the critical piece is in, in the work that we do at Water Protector Legal Collective is creating um, resource and infrastructure that makes sure that every water protector that is charged with either a state or a federal crime has available to them excellent legal representation. That individual water protector has complete free will and they will decide what their life needs are. And so whether an individual decides that they want to push it all the way to a jury trial 
or take a plea agreement or make some sort of arrangement, that is that individual water protector's choice. And that we make sure that they communicate with on a consistent basis as much as possible so that there's some clarity that that water protector is engaging with their attorney, making their wishes and desires and decisions clearly known. And that whenever they move together with a legal strategy, um, mm -hmm. that it is above board and clearly communicated in the best strategy that they can engage. So what's at stake for them? Their livelihood, their jobs, their children, their future, convictions, money, I mean, worries, stress. There's so much at stake for everybody, federal or state. They're dealing with a lot of things. Um, people have lost jobs because they have charges here. People can't get jobs because they have charges here. Um, so it's pretty extreme what's going on here. It's, it's unfortunate, but this is what state and federal governments will do, right? Mm -hmm. To keep us, to silence us, to criminalize us, to dehumanize us, and we're protecting our land. We're protecting what our obligations are to our ancestors. All we have are our prayers. All we have is each other, and we're being criminalized for protecting what we're supposed to protect. It's outrageous, unfortunately, but we understand what's at stake, too, and we definitely do the best we can to give the water protectors what they need. It's also important to note that at the federal level, each of the water protectors that has negotiated a plea agreement has made sure that it is a non-cooperating plea agreement. Um, each one of them has been very deliberate about not doing anything that implicates or, or makes more difficult the charges of other water protectors, whether it's at the federal level or the state level. We don't call them protests. We're getting together and protecting our community. We're protecting our future. We're protecting our children, our grandchildren, those unborn. We're protecting the animals. There's so much to protect. And these agencies don't see that. You know, we, uh, each one of us came to this job for different reasons. Uh, Lola came to this job and others uh, because of the uh, their participation in Standing Rock. And uh, and I came to it as a member of the Ogallala Lakota Nation and a participant in indigenous rights movements uh, for my entire legal career since 1989. And one of the things that that is absolutely clear here is that what happened at Standing Rock is standing on the shoulders of generations and generations of indigenous peoples that have stood up and protected their rights. And they may go be called by many different names, the American Indian Movement, um, uh, you know, different uh, military and cultural battles that have occurred throughout, throughout the 300 years of, uh, of, of this effort. Um, these movement activities uh, have always been led by individuals, individual indigenous peoples that have stepped up in a variety of different ways. Um, but some of our more successful uh, efforts have been started by individuals uh, that led to a recognition of our treaty rights, whether it's in the Northwest on uh, fishing 
or in uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin on, on fishing and hunting. And, uh, and the, the fact that our treaties have clearly established mechanisms by which we retain authority and right over those lands that we have given up in return for reserved lands on what are called reservations. And that is part of what has been at stake here. The lands where indigenous peoples and non-indigenous supporters are protesting is a part of, of the treaty that has been reserved for uh, Ogallala and Lakota people and Dakota and Nakota. And that land has uh, long been um, recognized and protected um, by Standing Rock and other indigenous peoples that have treaty rights to those lands. Um, and so this is, is a completely consistent movement activity, uh, protection activity that has, has had many examples of success over the last several decades in the modern kind of nature of movement work and movement activity with indigenous peoples in this country. That was Terry Janice and Leola Cowboy, who both work with the Water Protector Legal Collective folks. Keeping track of and supporting and trying to get the political prisoners out of jail. Special thanks to ACT OUT for that news report. And finally, as we mentioned before, we have a report on the um, possibility of holding those responsible for climate change accountable when it comes to um, disasters. Now, reparations mean basically a rectification of past and ongoing harms. So a simpler word would just be justice, but uh, sometimes people like the word climate restitution. The point being that climate change um, has been affecting the planet for quite some time now, and it's actually only just it's actually only just last December that the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society issued its first ever report linking extreme weather events to climate change which is important because people sometimes talk about that. So that's only been published uh, less than a year ago. Um, however, more important when it comes to climate change, there are uh, five carbon barons. That's uh, ExxonMobil, British Petroleum, also known as BP, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and Royal Dutch Shell. They are um, named in a current lawsuit uh, by the city of New York. And that... That lawsuit against these carbon barons uh, made the eighth local government in the country seeking to hold the carbon barons legally accountable for climate change damages. So again, most of the carbon barons are the fossil fuel companies. Uh, in the 1970s and 80s, the carbon baron leaders of these corporations, they've known for decades, four decades at least, uh, from in-house scientists that they were creating greenhouse effects and contributing to future catastrophe. Of course, as we've mentioned before on this show, The Peril and the Promise, uh, the uh, military is one of the worst carbon offenders. Um, you can check out a lot of this information in the Sierra Club magazine called Sierra. You've been listening to The Peril and the Promise from kcbpradio.org, produced by the Peace Life Center of Modesto. You can tune in every week at this time to learn about the peril that humans make for each other and the promise that we can make for a better world as community. Music on The Peril and the Promise on the Earth is by Alzara Getz. 